Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Richard Koch is a former management consultant, entrepreneur, and writer of several books on how to apply the Pareto principle, that is the 80-20 rule, in all walks of life. His latest book, Unreasonable Success, outlines a roadmap for success drawn from the life, actions, and perspectives of several prominent figures in history from a variety of fields who have realized what Richard has coined, unreasonable success. Richard has also used his concepts to successfully invest in several private equity investments. Richard's investments have included Filofax, Plymouth Gin, The Great Little Trading Company, and Betfair. Previously, he had been a consultant at Boston Consulting Group and later a partner at Bain & Company before leaving to start the management consulting firm LEK Consulting with Jim Lawrence and Ian Evans. All right, Mr. Richard Kosh, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? It's great. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Excellent. Richard, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today. Uh, as a clinical psychologist, your classic book, The 80-20 Principle, it really is a go-to for me, not only personally, but also professionally to help my clients maximize opportunities for meaning in their lives, as well as to engage in effective strategic and tactical problem solving through that 80-20 lens. I really enjoyed and got a lot out of your new book, Unreasonable Success. It was really interesting and provided a lot of new perspectives, not only on success, but also really on a lot of important historical figures. Uh, Richard, my guess is that you've done a ton of interviews and podcasts where you review the map for success outlined the book. I was hoping we could perhaps do something a little different today. Uh, specifically, Richard, given that you are an individual who has realized enormous success by any conventional definition, I think you're in a really special position to be able to provide some very unique perspectives on some conceptual and even philosophical conundrums around success. Uh, and if we have time, I'd also love to end with some of your top suggestions or insights around achieving success. That sound okay for a game plan? Yeah, it's a great relief to me not not to have to repeat some of the things that I've been saying about the book, uh, unreasonable success that is, rather than the eighty twenty principle. But yes, um, that's excellent. Yes, I'm intrigued to know what you're going to ask me. All right. Well, with no further ado, let's proceed. Um, so, you know, Richard, one of the challenges that has plagued research on happiness and well-being is that the true meaningfulness of one's present day happiness or well-being, it may not often reveal itself for days, weeks, or months. Uh, for example, the happiness, if we can call it that, of eating a piece of cake may be sowing sadness in a year from now owing to physical problems or things that arise from that as well. What if something I do makes me happy right now but causes misery for another person? So, you know, Richard, I think the concept of success might be plagued by some of these same dynamics. How have you personally come to define success based on your experience? What I take as a definition of success in the book, Unreasonable Success, is the impact on the world which is desired by individuals. So I'm measuring success very subjectively by the criteria that the individual um, players, as I call them in the book, the historical figures, actually um, pursued. And I, I have tried to approach it with a value-free uh, perspective. For example, Lenin, who was by all, by all reasonable historical standards, uh, set the tone for the one-party state and the, the uh, death camps, which Hitler later emulated, um, you know, was not, <laughs> not a particularly pleasant human being. And he did, he did some good, but he did enormous, enormous amounts of harm 
And, but nevertheless, he's in the book because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to overthrow the czarist uh, tyranny in Russia, and he did that. The fact that he set up an even worse tyranny afterwards is sort of, you know, that was perfectly all right with him. He believed that the end justified the means, and, uh, and he hated the bourgeoisie because he'd seen his elder brother hanged by the czar for uh, a rather amateur attempt at um, plotting an assassination. So, you know, I've, I've simply taken the people at their own word of what they wanted to achieve and said, did they, did they actually achieve it without any judgment about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing? I, I actually go two ways on this. I mean, uh, one, on the one hand, the touchstone for me of happiness is whether it actually fulfills for you at some level, meaning. So I'm a great fan of Viktor Frankl, who's written about this, and, and you know some of the things that he says, for example. He says, to the Europeans, it's a characteristic of the American culture that again and again one is commanded and ordered to be happy. But success cannot be pursued, it must ensue. One must have a reason to be happy. If Once the reason is found, however, one becomes happy automatically. As we see, a human being is not one in pursuit of happiness, but rather in search of a reason to be happy. Uh, last but not least, through actualizing the potential meaning inherent and dormant in a given situation. And I, I do like that definition because it's, it, in a way, it enables us to have our cake and eat it. But, you know, we say, okay, happiness is, is more than just transient and ephemeral happiness which, um, you know, may be caused by chemical reactions, may be caused by, you know, having a drink or having a, seeing a wonderful um, landscape or something like that. But it has to be something which is in the context of one's total life. And I, I believe quite strongly that, that happiness and success actually belong together in many ways. And this is one of the things that Frankel also said. He said, words to the effect that, you know, happiness must ensue. The same is true of success. And it only does so as the unintended side of surrender to a cause greater than oneself or as a byproduct of surrender to another person. So, you know, that to me seems to have, you know, a lot of, a lot of emotional and philosophical depth to it. And it means that happiness is actually... Um, something which is deeply rooted in meaning. And, you know, in a way, I also believe in the philosophical view that, that, that actually happiness can only be really true and really uh, useful if, it is, um, if it's actually something which is constructive. I mean, we can, we can all look at what Hitler did, but it was basically destructive. So there is something to be said for the view that that uh, you know you can have happiness pursuing your own agenda and that's that's great for you but if you actually look at it more deeply what we want is happiness which is is constructive because ultimately that is where you get a sense of achievement from actually having constructed something rather than destroyed something um so these are very very deep waters um and you know I think actually biography and history may be more telling in an odd way and more useful than some of the other sciences, because in observing the impact of people and whether they were happy and whether they were successful, you can actually look at it both from the individual's point of view, 
the subjective effect, but also from society's point of view, or the effect on other people and the world as a whole, and say whether that was functional as well. But honestly, I've got no real answer to your question. It's, it's a, it is indeed, as you said, a conundrum and not one that I, I would pretend to have the answer to. I agree. Nevertheless, I think that's a really thoughtful answer. And I like your lens on it from looking at it both not only from the self-report maybe of the individual, but then zooming out and looking at it from a society level. And I, I think the other point I would make just to build on something you said there is that often pursuing things that are meaningful involve a great deal of pain. Uh, and there, there is meaning in that pain. Not, and it's not in the service of suffering. I'll give you an example. If someone's spending the last days of someone's life uh, w with a loved one, uh, that could be incredibly painful for that person, but it could also be very meaningful at the same time. So feeling good is not always a cue that we're on the right path. Sometimes anything worth pursuing may have an element of difficulty uh, attached to it. Well, that was extreme, extremely the case as far as, um, uh, as, far as uh, Victor Franklin himself was concerned, because he found meaning in a concentration camp. You know, he was, he was landed in Auschwitz stripped of all his possessions, stripped of all his books and all the rest of it. And he spent the whole time that he was in the concentration camps um, actually reconstructing a book which he'd written about this very subject of man's search for meaning. And uh, he, he was successful in doing that. And that kept him alive. All the other members of his family died. But he had a purpose and a meaning in hell, essentially. Um, and so, you know, I do think that there is, there is something of going through that sort of experience. Obviously, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but but very often the human spirit is at its best when it is in circumstances which are at their worst. I've certainly seen that as a uh, clinician for sure. And my next question, I think, uh, flows naturally from what we're talking about. Again, there may be no objective answer, but I'd be really curious to get your take on this. Uh, in athletics, it's increasingly being realized that there is a difference between health and fitness. So there are, you know, there's many people who can run a 10K under 30 minutes, which is, which is a great time. Uh, but these people might be also wildly unhealthy underneath and plagued by colds, injuries, things like that. I also think there are probably healthy and unhealthy versions of success. Richard, what are some of the metrics one could use to identify if they are pursuing a healthy process around success versus one in which you think they, the person might be, they might tell themselves they're building themselves up, but they're actually really slowly tearing themselves down. If you were mentoring someone around success, what, what would be some of the red flags you would point out or, or attune them to? Well, I think this question of whether it's constructive or not is quite a helpful thing. I also believe in the old-fashioned idea of conscience in a way. You know, if your conscience is telling you to do something or not to do something, and at some deep level, that is, uh, it's not infallible because your con conscience might be conditioned by um, a very unfortunate upbringing or by, um, who knows, all kinds of things that can happen. But nevertheless, I think that that's, a, that's an indication as well. But, you know... <laughs> Pete, I, I suppose I think it's impossible and possibly even undesirable co to construct a socially directed uh, consensus measure of, of happiness. In a way, I believe in a, a free market in, in happiness, that, that people must be left, and this is the old Christian idea of free will, that, that people must be left to, um, to do what they, what they can do, to do what they want to do. And yet, I'm also, I also want to have my cake and eat it, I suppose, because I do agree with perhaps even moralistic 
or indeed you might term them happy completions, but you're likely to be happier if you make other people happier, um, either through personal relationships or if you find meaning, which, which like Steve Jobs was expressed in inventing wonderful new devices which have changed people's lives. Now, he did it because he wanted to construct things which were insanely great and beautiful and incredibly effective and useful and simple. But nevertheless, that caused a great deal of happiness by someone who actually, in many ways, in his personal relationships, was a very uh, bad role model. You know, he was a bully. He, uh, he never allowed time for his daughter. Um, and he was, uh, you know, he was you know very very selfish in many ways but nevertheless you can argue that by pursuing what had meaning for him he actually did in the end do far more good than harm um so i don't know i i think by observing people by observing oneself even introspectively or by observing one's um, uh, close friends or family you know, you can see whether people are happy or not and, and what the effect of that is. And very often it's true that you get happy by making other people happy in one way or another. And so, you know, I want freedom <laughs> for people to do the wrong things if necessary. But I also, I, I would also sort of point out that, that, that very often doing the right things is, is the easiest way to be happy. And so therefore, in a way, as I think Bertrand Russell once said, you know, the only people who were truly selfish were the saints because, <laughs> because saints did good things and therefore, you know, they were happy. So Something I've seen with a lot of clients that's a, a tell for me that maybe they're going in the wrong direction is that continued success will breed more anxiety, not less right? Like they're coming into it with a very hollow sense of self and they're trying to use the achievement as a way of kind of filling themselves up. But all it does is create this kind of internal arms race where they, you know, they're only as good as their last success or pat on the back. And it's never internalized. Uh, and even, even if it's helping other people, they still are not helping themselves on some level. And it, it just creates a lot of existential anxiety more so than it it relieves it funny enough. It's a bit counterintuitive, but this is what you see. I've learned to become very, um, not suspicious, but very wary of when high achieving clients come through the door that to be very attuned to what they're actually up to versus what they tell themselves that they're up to as far as their, their pursuits go. Yes, I can see that very much so. But you know, also one can argue that those people might be chasing temporary reinforcement uh, and that it's not real success, authentic success, and all the rest of it. But very often, I think people, you know, if they're pursuing things that have meaning for them, if they're pursuing things that they are really good at doing, uh, it might actually not be um, artificial. I mean, it can be artificial, but I don't think you should. I, I, I'm certainly very cautious in saying that, that that person thinks he's doing X, but he's really doing Y, because in some cases, um, although that might superficially be true at a deep level, that just might not be true. So, you know, jobs, you know, if you, if you had been advising jobs, perhaps uh, when he was uh, in Apple, you might have said, well, you know, you would be a lot happier if you weren't so demanding of people, you'd be a lot happier if you weren't uh, such an asshole. You'd be a, you'd be a lot happier, and you'd get better results out of people if you gave them pri praise rather than sort of you know 
unmitigating tired of criticism. And yet, in the case of Jobs, I think that would have that that would have been wrong. That actually, it worked for him, and it worked for the people who could put up with that sort of treatment because they did go on and do things that they would otherwise not have done. So. I don't know. I think I think it's a very difficult issue. No, th- these are really tough. And I think what I see in my work with people is that we often have to settle on the fact that, you know, three or four things can be true at the same time and they may not line up with one another. And we just have often have to sit with that and sit with the disparity and understand that there's multiple truths. Humans are very complicated, of course, and our lives are very complicated. That allows for room for multiple things to be true all at the same time. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I think it was Niels Bohr who said that the the, the opposite of a of a uh, trivial truth is is a falsehood, but the opposite of a great truth is another great truth. And I think that that, that was certainly true with uh, what he was doing in uh, quantum mechanics, where basically the whole world re- revealed by that type of uh, physics was was totally counterintuitive. You know, you could have a, a wave. Uh, and and uh, something that was resting at the same time. Uh, very very strange. Yes, I think there are there are multiple levels of truth. Um, I think it's uh, what it, what is useful though, and certainly what I can see in your profession is very useful. Often is just pointing out to people that there are there are truths other than the one which is evident to them, and trying to get them to sort of you know understand that there's more going on than they think is going. on. Absolutely. And there's this idea of effective realism uh, where we feel things, therefore we feel that they're true, right? Our, the interoceptive experiences in our body, that is the sensations in our body, and then the affect from that flows from that is so convincing that when we feel something, we confuse that with it being true as opposed to being a prediction that our brain is making uh, about the world. We're not detecting things, we're predicting things. Yes, exactly. And what, one of the most powerful things, uh, you know, that I ever came across in psychology was transactional analysis, where it actually encouraged you to, to, uh, when, to when you have a very strong emotion, to examine it as if from the outside and say, well, you know, this is what you're feeling, but what's the real root cause of that? The root, real root cause of that may be an experience that you had a long time ago. And if, once you start analysing it as though you were outside, as though you were having a cup of tea with your emotions, as it were, then very often the emotions dissipate. Um, obviously, emotions could be positive as well as negative, but certainly for things like anger or things like uh, um, humiliation or whatever, then you know you can very often dismantle uh, a, a response which is extremely unhelpful in circumstances if they're not really related to the current circumstances. Absolutely. It's a little bit dated now, but the but the book, The Games That People Play, is really, really fascinating. Again, you have to sort of look past a little bit of the the way that the, the language is used, but it's a, it's a really interesting take on interactions between human beings and, again, how much filtering and how much, how much our yes. past influences the present. Richard, I'm really, really anxious to get your answer to this next question because I, I think it really, tr- what I've tried to do in this next question is really sum up some of the competing tensions that I see a lot of people have to manage and, and competing tensions that I've really reflected on uh, as someone who's, you know, both ambitious but trying to stay grounded in, in myself. Uh, in, in what I think is an amazing book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Uh, I, I can't uh, recommend that book highly enough. 
Uh, he talks about thinking territorially versus hierarchically. Basically, your territory is a space you own and can have influence. Thinking hierarchically involves potentially unhealthy comparisons to others that can be never-ending and ultimately self-defeating. And he really, really advocates being territorial as much as possible. Ultimately, in reality, I think especially within a commercial endeavor, both are important. So I guess all this to say, like Richard, how would you advise someone manage these tensions? That is, focusing on what you can control in your vision versus being attuned to competitors, market forces. There is an outside world we, ha we do have to be pay attention to. What, what's the right blend? How do you think through that? Well, I, I had never come across uh, The War of Art. Sounds fascinating, and I will, re will read the book. I mean, I'd, I, when I became aware that uh, uh, this was an issue, I actually looked at my book on characters who've been very, very successful, and it was very revealing to do that because I, I discovered that it was very easy to classify these people into those two buckets. Only three of my 20 people uh, fell into the hierarchical competitive market forces bucket. They were uh, Bill Bain, Jeff Bezos, and Madonna, actually, um, who were people who were very much influenced by uh, having to provide a product, feeling that they had to provide a product, like it would uh, take up in, in huge quantities. I suspect that the other approach is better, the territorial approach is better, because it starts with what you know, and what you know is what you can do and what you can influence. Uh, Churchill, Marie Curie, and discovered radium. Leonardo, knows, needs no introduction. Uh, Walt Disney, Bob Dylan. Einstein, Jobs himself, Frankel, Bruce Henderson, the founder of the Boston Consulting Group, um, actually fell in this category because he didn't really care initially about, you know, founding a company or being very successful. He wanted to discover the truth about competition. So although he was writing about competition, it was really internally generated from, from him. Uh, also, along those lines, uh, John Maynard Keynes, you know, completely revolutionized economics in the 1930s. Lenin, that we talked about before. Nelson Mandela, who basically found himself in prison, where you think for 27 years, you know, you'd think on Robben Island, he'd have no influence or whatever, but he had influence because the first thing he did was to influence uh, the people around him, the, the fellow uh, members of the ANC, and he tried to educate them and so on and so forth. But then he actually influenced the prison um, warders and the head of the prison and all the rest of it. And, and then a stream of people eventually came, you know, to try and see whether this man might be helpful in trying to find a way uh, through the almost impossible situation of the ANC trying to destroy the South African government and the South African government trying to destroy the ANC. And he managed to do that. He just basically, through force of personality and through his own ideas and through intuition about, you know, a settlement might be possible. You know, no one else believed that a settlement with the fascist regime in South Africa might be possible, but Nelson Mandela did. So, you know, he worked outwards in, in exactly that same, same way. J.K. Rowling, you know, inventing Harry Potter. Helena Rubinstein inventing um, uh, modern cosmetics. Um, St. Paul, Paul of Tarsus, as I call him, because I don't think that he was a saint by modern criteria. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher, all of these people were very self-directed. They found uh, their own way. 
and they behaved in what uh, your friend, uh, your author Stephen Pressfield would say, was a territorial way, and they were expanding from there. So it doesn't prove that that's a better way of doing it, but it does say that it's a, a paradigm that should be investigated. And in many ways, I think uh, what we're describing is the difference between a European approach and a, perhaps even a quasi-intellectual approach and a, a, a North American or particularly US approach, um, which is founded on the gospel of market forces. Well, I love market forces. I'm, I'm sorry, a believer in market forces for public policy. But yet, in terms of creating a great um, achievement in life and in terms of having enormous influence, I suspect that the other approach is better, the territorial approach is better, and I think working outward from that is a is a great insight. I, I really like that uh, comparison. I'm going to use it more as a metaphor, but I think this is very true of music, right? So, you know, playing in a cover band adds a certain amount of value to the world, but it's essentially very derivative and just sort of commoditizing something that someone else has already done. But I think the the artists that we value the most are the ones that are able to sort of engage in some sort of alchemy, right? Where they're able to pull together a whole bunch of influences and combine them, recombine them, and then express them in a way that no one's ever heard before. And maybe without any concern to whether people will like it or not. It's just, hey, this is what I like. This is what spoke to me. Many artists talk about not even really having a choice about what comes out of them. It's just, it's just what's coming up. And that seems to be true of the folks that you mentioned as well that have that kind of more territorial view. It, it was within them and, and, and expressed it really maybe without a lot of choice. It's like, hey, this, this is just what's coming up for me. Yeah, I think Martin Luther said, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. In other words, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be um, really awkward and difficult and, <laughs> and, and, and put, a, you know, two fingers up to the Pope and all the rest of it. I have to, I have to do it. Uh, and I think artists, not, not just musicians, but all artists are actually the archetype for that. But what it, what it seems to me, Pete, that, that, that is a common denominator is it comes from a very strong sense of self-belief. That you know, these people, one way or another, come to acquire a terrific belief that they, you know, that they should do what's their destiny, and they can't do anything else, and they don't really care whether people like it. I mean, Dylan was a great illustration of this. You know, he was the cover, a poster boy for you know the uh, 1960s philosophy of love and peace and all, all the rest of it. Basically, he was pigeonholed. And, you know, at, at, at the Woodstock Festival in, I think it's 1968 or whatever, they wanted him to actually perform in that role. And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And, he, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the legend is that he said, you know, here's, here's some rock and roll. <laughs> you know, from being a folk singer, I'm going to become uh, an electric singer and, and sort of, you know, I'm going to change the mode that I'm in because that's the way that I want to express myself. I don't want to be stuck, you know, just doing what I've always been doing. I'm going to go on to the, the next thing. And he became very unpopular with many of his fans as a result of that. But you can see that, that you know, it was something that he believed he wanted to do and had to do, and he didn't care about what the fans thought about it. and he didn't care what the uh, record companies thought about it and he actually didn't really care very much about how, how many uh, albums he sold how many records he sold um, and in fact it's very telling that 
that uh, his recordings of his own songs sold far fewer copies than some of the people who covered the, the, the songs and all the rest of it. He just didn't care. He just wanted to create those songs and he just wanted to express himself. And I believe that everyone should try and do that. The people in my book who were very successful at some stage in their life, and usually at the beginning of their career and for quite a considerable time thereafter, were not very successful. And yet those people managed to persuade themselves that they could do great things or they could do things which they wanted to do and therefore they acquired a degree of self-belief, sometimes even at the same time that they doubted whether they could do it. And, and that to me is, uh, is a message that, uh, you know, if you don't think that you can do something, you don't necessarily have to stop there and say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to try and compete in that particular world. If you're expressing something which is a deep need for yourself, if you're expressing some... Um, ability that you've got, if you're expressing some insight that you might have, or if you're just expressing your own personality, then, you know, that can lead to incredible success if you really believe that you can change things. Richard, that's a great segue into the next question. Uh, I really like what you had to say about leveraging self-doubt as a, as a path towards self-belief. And I think you touched on this just a little bit. Can you elaborate a little bit more about how we can actually leverage self-doubt, which is, you know, incredibly common as a way of propelling towards ultimately being successful? Well, again, I go back to my examples. Yes. I mean, but look at the greatest self-doubt in history that we know about, which was that of Paul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He was persecuting Christians. And then he thought he saw a vision of the living Christ, which completely 180 degrees changed his perspective. To have that vision, he'd have to have self-doubt to start with. You know, he'd have to doubt that persecuting the Christians was necessarily the right thing to do. And once he'd confronted that self-doubt, and once he'd had this vision, which in a way, you know, we would dismiss today as some form of madness, really, probably, he thought that he was going up to the third heaven <laughs> and that he could read the mind of God. Well, you know, I mean, most people today would say that was the, the stamp of a, a madman. And yet that self-doubt precipitated the most um, incredibly productive form of self-belief. And in our own time, you can see it with Steve Jobs. You know, he, he, he saw himself defined as being the much-loved adopted child. So, you know, he was basically abandoned. He was chosen. He was special. And that became his sense of belief. Um, there's an interesting quote in the book, the great biography of Jobs by Walter Isaacson, by a friend of his. He said, Steve talked a lot about being abandoned by his biological parents and the pain that that caused. It made him independent. He followed the beat of a different drummer, and that came from being Dif uh, in a different world than the world he was actually born into. And another colleague has said his desire for complete control of whatever he makes derives directly from his personality and the fact that he was abandoned at birth. He wants to control his environment because he sees the product as an extension of himself, which in a way is a, is a born of desperation that, you know, he thought that he wouldn't be able to express himself unless he controlled the environment and that meant that he had to make perfect products. So to me, I just think self-doubt and self-belief 
very often go together. And if people doubt themselves, it's not necessarily an unhelpful emotion, uh, as long as they realize that, uh, like we were saying earlier, Pete, that, that there are two opposite truths can be true. You know, you can doubt yourself and you can believe in yourself. And both of those are true and both of those can be very productive. And the tension between the two, I think, is something which very often propels a desire to be successful. I had that particular experience myself. And I've got a story in the book there when I was age nine and went to see uh, my auntie in uh, Seaford on the south coast of, of Britain. Uh, and she was a lovely lady, uh, my auntie. We, we thought she was uh, wonderful. But she had one unfortunate trait, which was that she lived with a real dragon, a woman called Miss Gates. And I remember one day vividly, uh, sort of just sitting down, and I think I was uh, writing in a book at the time, and uh, Miss Gates waltzed into the room and said, Richard, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had no idea what I wanted to be. So, you know, I blurted out the first thing that came into my mind, which is I want to be a millionaire. I want to make money. And she tutted and said, that's ridiculous. Your father's never made any money. He, he never will. You know, why don't you think of a realistic objective? And so that planted the seed of self-doubt, certainly. But it also planted quite a, I mean, a very immature and slightly uh, ridiculous idea. Well, no, I'll prove <laughs> Miss Gates wrong. I'll prove that I can become a millionaire. So, you know, the self-doubt, you know, is, I've said this thing and it's it's silly, isn't it? You know, she's picking on me because it's silly and it, it is silly and I doubt that I could ever do it. But, uh, and I never thought about it before, but then, you know, you can actually say, well, maybe I'll have a go at it. Uh, and that, and that to me is um, I don't know what kind of psychological mechanism that is, but but it's uh, it can be very powerful. Yeah, I, I think that self doubt in the right dose can be among the the healthiest of impulses in somebody and leverage the right way. It, it, as just as you've outlined, it can really help to move people forward and to allow them to to achieve that that success. Um, uh, Richard, as you're, as you're likely aware in psychology, there's this principle of, or, or it's not just psychology, in life, there's this principle of hedonic adaptation. Basically, we get used to pleasurable things over time. I think the best example of someone wins a lottery, you know, while initially euphoric, the person's self-reported happiness level returns to baseline, usually within a year, which is pretty amazing. Uh, my fear with people chasing success is that they are setting themselves up for a self-defeating kind of arms race where they are, in essence, chasing temporary reinforcement that will ultimately give way to craving and agitation that can only be remedied by even more success. So, Richard, you know, being that you're you are a guy who's been wildly successful, I would absolutely love your perspective on the lived experience of this. What is the view like at the top of the mountain? Just another mountain in the distance to tackle or lasting satisfaction or, or, or some combination of the two? What's your lived experience of this? I'd be fascinated to hear the answer. Well, I can sort of relate to that. I mean, I don't want to um, blow my own trumpet, toot my own horn, as you might say. But, you know, one of the things that I have done is demonstrated that I, I can be very successful in making money in venture capital. So for the last 37 years, I've increased my after-tax assets by an average of 22% a year, which is just crazy. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's not because I'm particularly clever. It's because I use a particular method or principle, which I call the STAR principle. But 
you know, won't go into that. But, you know, it so happens that in the last few weeks, at the end of last year, I actually passed a milestone that I'd set for myself of a certain amount of assets that I had. And then I sort of say to myself, well, you know, what do I do next? And this is your question about the, the you know, I've, I've climbed a mountain. Maybe I want to climb a, a bigger mountain. And, you know, the, I suppose the idea of hedonic adaptation, if I understand it, would suggest that, you know, I should really do something that's more worthwhile, but that, you know, I should think about what I'm going to do with the money that I've made uh, rather than make more money. But I have to say that <laughs> I do want to climb that mountain, the second mountain. So I think it. it I think there's, there's a difference between the situation you've described with the lottery and the situation that people very often find themselves in, where they have uh, achieved something and achieved what they intended to do, and then they have to decide what to do next. Because if it's genuine achievement, I think that, uh, and if there's a good reason for it, and if people really enjoy doing it, then I think people should just carry on doing it. I mean, what would you have said to Jobs after he had um, invented the Mac? Would you have said to him, well, that's great, you know, uh, but don't think about any of these other devices. Uh, you know, do something, you know, which is even more, I don't know, artistic or something which is even more uh, philanthropic or whatever. No, I mean, he said, when, when he returned to Apple in 1997, when it was almost bankrupt, he then said, well, what I want to do is wait for the next big thing. And we all know that that was the iPad and the iPhone, iPod and all, all the rest of it, all those wonderful devices. So in a way... I think if you if you are authentically good at doing something, there is nothing wrong with pursuing that particular um, vocation. I'd even call you know making money for me, apart from my writing, is is that actually a vocation? I don't think there's any anything wrong with that. I just think it's a question of whether or not uh, you really do continue to enjoy it, because for sure anything that you achieve does come with very heavy costs. And the question is whether your satisfaction that you derive from the achievement is greater than uh, all those things and whether those things pale into insignificance. If they don't, then I think it's fine to you know, stop and do something else. But I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't wholly agree perhaps with the premises, premise behind your, your question, but maybe I've misunderstood you. Maybe you think that, that doing what you're really good at doing and continue doing it even though it does have some downsides, is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, it, it occurred to me as you were answering, I think you were onto something with differentiating the process you were involved in versus the lottery. And I think one filter to maybe put on this is to differentiate process versus outcome. So the the pleasure of an outcome may be fleeting, but the but the enjoyment and contentedness of a process can be can be ongoing. And this is what we talk to clients about all the time. It's like you have to enjoy the process of life, living out your values. You're never really done. Like there's no finish line. Yes, there's markers along the way that will indicate that you've heard. Uh, hit certain benchmarks, but really we want to be invested much more in process than we do than we do outcome. I guess it's it's the idea when people think, hey, if I buy this car, I'm going to be I'm set. My life is going to be awesome. Or if I get a partner that looks a certain way, or or whatnot. And what people see is that's not real. You know that doesn't stand up over time. It's the process of life that is much more where the contentedness is derived from. What, what do you think about that frame on it? 
Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the, the the old expression is it's not it's not the destination, it's the journey, and the journey never ends until you die, of course. But uh, uh, and perhaps even then, who knows? <laughs> uh, so you know, you uh, I think that I, I think that is right. Uh, you've got to enjoy the process. If you don't enjoy doing something at some deep level, uh, whatever the frustrations, whatever, you should certainly certainly stop doing it. I agree. Uh, but, you know, many of the people that in my book were actually very quirky and they had obsessions. And I mean, for example, Winston Churchill spent seven years uh, in in uh, the 1930s trying to oppose self-government, very mild measure of self-government for India. And he thought Gandhi was the Antichrist. And <laughs> was a complete and utter waste of time because he was he was wrong he didn't know really understand anything about contemporary india and you know then basically he got on to a track which was terribly effective which was saying in germany is terrible we've got to stop it otherwise the whole world is going to blow up richard again pulling from the war of art i think an underestimated saboteur in people achieving success is a fear of success and specifically what people fear is that success will be associated with loss that we don't like to admit or talk about. It could be a peer group that you end up transcending in some way, the loss of friendships owing to structural factors like you have to move or, or maybe even to emotional factors like jealousy. Success can also be met by attack, right? Like especially if you're successful within, within a hierarchical relationship like uh, a marriage or out or out, you know, besting a boss on a consistent basis, which interestingly can lead to depression. Richard, in, I guess in your experience, how much does a fear of success hold people back? And if so, what can be done about it? I do think that the fear of success is there, but I think there's a more basic thing behind that, which is uh, not exactly fear of failure, but lack of belief that people really can be successful. What differentiated the 20 people from everyone else was that they had this very strong self-belief. And if you have very strong self-belief, you necessarily care very much about some of the other things which are conventionally thought to be very important, like having successful personal relationships, for example. I mean, many of the people, most of the people in the book actually either had no deep personal relationships or unsuccessful personal relationships, or they had a very supportive spouse who devoted their life to making the other person actually um, able to concentrate on what made them great and I think about Bismarck's wife, and I think about Clementine Churchill, who devoted herself entirely to making Winston Churchill's life such that he could go and do the things which he thought were of world historical importance. And again, to, to, to take the example of the people in my book, what is, is really uh, so amazing is that once they acquired this very strong sense of self-belief, it dominated everything else. It wasn't a question of um, you know whether they were going to try and do what they were trying to do. It was absolute intensity of ambition, intensity of belief that they had to do what they wanted to do. And at some deep level, I think that quite possibly uh, that made them extremely happy, even if by conventional criteria, they didn't satisfy the requirements of, you know, a rounded person and uh, someone has successful personal relationships, for example. So it's not just fear of, of uh, success. It's also fear of not getting to success. But that can be totally overridden by a very strong sense of self-belief, whether it is objectively 
based or not, whether it's really true or not. If people have that belief, they become incredibly powerful. Richard, I want to give you the last word in our discussion. Given everything that we've talked about today, uh, what are maybe the 20% of strategies or maybe even just a handful of, of strategies or maybe even a strategy that you feel people need to have in mind, in hand when thinking about pursuing healthy success in their lives? Uh, there are nine factors in my book, and I would boil them down to four, which are the most important. Firstly, and we've just been talking about this, Pete, acquiring self-belief and using self-doubt as a tool to help acquire a, a sense of self-belief. So that would be the first thing. The second thing, which we haven't discussed at all, and I'll just try and cover it very briefly, is a transforming experience. You know, one of the things which is common to all 20 of these people is that they went into a particular experience, which might be a company, or it might be an event, or it might be a relationship, which totally transformed their effectiveness and made them successful. And they were, were different people when they came out of that experience, this, this transforming experience, than when they went into it. My conclusion from that is that if you really want to be very successful and perhaps even very happy, what you need to do is to have a transforming experience and engineer it for yourself. The third thing, which is very important, is defining one breakthrough achievement that you want to do with your life, which world a different place and hopefully a better place then you better define that. And you need to take time for that because you need to have a lot of experiences. You need to have, for example, a transforming experience. Um, but, you know, realize that, that life, you know, is a very long game. And therefore, if you want to have uh, unreasonable success, you need a breakthrough achievement. And you, you won't necessarily define it correctly the first time or the second time or the third time. But if you think about that, you're more likely to um, recognize opportunity when it comes along. Very often opportunity comes in a muffled way. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't arrive and say, this is a great opportunity for you. Uh, but very often it is an opportunity. And the last thing, which I think, the fourth thing, which I think is very important, which people don't necessarily even think about, is that the people who are very successful always have a personal vehicle which they find and they drive, whether it's a political party or whether it's an academic institution or whether it's just a book and a character, as with Harry Potter or whatever. You need a vehicle which is going to drive your success. So thinking about the breakthrough achievement is also should be accompanied by thinking about what the personal vehicle might be, which will drive you towards that achievement. Acquire self-belief, have a transforming experience, define your breakthrough achievement, and find and drive your personal vehicle. Excellent, Richard. That's a great summary. And again, uh, the book is out now, Unreasonable Success. I, I got a lot out of it. And again, there's all, I believe there's the nine steps and you've just distilled it down to four. It's a really, really interesting read and offers a really interesting perspective. Richard, thanks so much for your, uh, your time today and uh, your perspective. I think you have a really neat position from which to speak about life. And uh, I've just so appreciated the opportunity to, to chat with you today. Pete, I enjoyed it very much. And you've made me think, which is... Um... Uh, wonderful. And, and doesn't very often happen when I'm doing a podcast. So thank you very much indeed for that. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. You are very welcome. Take good care. And uh, hopefully we may talk soon. Very good. Thank you, Pete. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. 
This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.